Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Previously on Murder on the Space Coast. It's not justice anymore. It's politics. It's if I want to raise, I can't lose. If I want to move up, I've got to have a winning record. And I'm willing to do whatever it takes to do it. We have a really rotten system here and that it takes personal integrity. And once you lose your personal integrity, you know, you got more power. You know, you got power without principles. I'm news columnist John A. Torres, and welcome back to Murder on the Space Coast and to the 14th and final episode of Season 2. For the last two months, we've journeyed together and learned how the state, mainly Prosecutor Dean Moxley, relied on a sort of playbook to prosecute innocent men who were later exonerated by DNA like Wilton Dedge and William Dillon. Juan Ramos, a Cuban refugee, was found not guilty in less than two hours on retrial. Another, Gerald Stano, was executed. But I want to talk about our season one subject, Gary Bennett, who was also victimized by the playbook and deceitful practices of the state attorney's office and Dean Moxley. Gary is now entering his 34th year in prison. He was put there based on a partial palm print found inside a home he had visited. The lying, fraudulent dog handler John Preston and the testimony of two jailhouse informants. And we've learned just how reliable that kind of testimony is. Gary Bennett should not be in prison, and yet he will surely die in there, because to free Gary Bennett would unravel the entire conspiracy that took place here in Brevard County during the early 1980s. They would have to admit the system was flawed, rigged. Then the Department of Justice would have to, I mean, they would be obligated to examine every single case prosecuted during that time period. Because if it happened to William Dillon and Wilton Dedge and Juan Ramos and Gary Bennett, then it happened to others. The people in charge of our justice system did not care for justice in the least. And they need to be held accountable. That is what we thought Florida Attorney General Pam Bondi would do when she promised to look into these cases when she was running for office. That was in 2010. We are still waiting for her findings because even though her office informs me that they have 18,347 electronic files as well as 13 boxes of hard documents on these cases, they never bothered to issue a statement on their findings. Isn't that, isn't that kind of odd? The closest thing to a statement was when I pressed them on what they found. Their response was that regarding the John Preston fraudulent dog handler cases, that the defendants had either confessed, been released, are deceased, or are serving time for something else. So, is Bondi trying to say that because someone passed away or is 
serving time for some other crime, we shouldn't give a damn whether or not they were framed? I mean, that's what it sounds like to me. So, we decided to order copies of everything. Yep, everything. The 18,347 electronic files, as well as the 13 boxes of hard documents. Everything. They are charging us $2,005. And my executive editor, Bob Gabordi, well, he didn't hesitate when I told him what it would cost. We will obviously report on anything we find in those documents. What exactly do we know so far about this playbook? The playbook was a reliance on a fraudulent dog handler who claimed his dogs could do things that weren't possible. The dogs, for example, were used to link a suspect to a crime eight years after the fact, and apparently detected scents over water and paved highways. Yeah, it got that exaggerated. It's shameful that Dean Moxley relied on the dog expert even after the dog handler, John Preston, was discredited elsewhere, even after local police told Moxley the guy was full of it, and even after his work had been overturned in federal court in Ohio. Moxley also relied on the use of jailhouse snitches who were given special consideration for their testimony. Jailhouse snitches who, according to one lawyer, were solicited by a prosecutor walking down the jail hallway saying, who wants a deal? We know now that someone had to have been feeding these guys information because they testified in cases later overturned by DNA. In other words, they testified that two innocent guys confessed to crimes they did not do. Those informants in at least two of the cases also created a conflict of interest with the public defender's office because the public defender's office couldn't represent both the snitch and the suspect. So back then, the state got to assign a new lawyer to the suspect And in at least two of the cases, the new lawyers assigned were mediocre at best. So where does all that lead? What was going on in the 1980s in the Brevard County State Attorney's Office? Let's listen to what some of the voices we've heard throughout Season 2 have to say. Here's attorney David Menschel, who used to lead the Florida Innocence Project. In a lot of wrongful conviction cases, the, the... you know, the, the cause essentially is, is a bunch of well-intentioned people who made a mistake, right? That is the typical wrong, wrongful conviction case. That's not this case. This case, and, you know, again, I think it's tempting to think, of the, to, to think about this case about the fraudulent dog handler, but, but in a sense, that's not really what this case is about either. This case is about a criminal conspiracy that exists in Brevard County. Here is Orlando attorney Mark Harwitz who represented Wilton Dedge. It is what it is. Oh, my God. Well, that, that's, those are dark days for justice when you see that kind of conduct. Here is Chief Assistant Public Defender Mike Parolo, who helped William Dillon go free. I was ready just to present the truth of what was going on back in that time period, you know, the early 80s, uh, talking about 1980, 81, probably up until, you know, 83 or 84. Um, so a good chunk of the early 80s, good first four years or so that at least I could find. Um, It was just to prove what was going on. Here is retired longtime public defender J.R. Russo, who saw many of these cases firsthand. This is a case where lawful evidence never existed in the first place. False testimony and use of fraudulent evidence by the state attorney and poor representation at, at the trial level by private counsel led to this travesty. Here is Geraldo Rivera, the man who founded the Innocence Project Barry Sheck, and Florida Attorney General Pam Bondi, 
before she was elected. I want to concentrate on a dog handler whose science, as exposed on 2020 way back when, was so pathetic that cops had to know. They definitely knew Gerardo. Judges had to know. Gerardo, they knew about him, and they knew that the jailhouse snitches were lying. What's got to happen is an independent investigation by the attorney general's office. You've got to go back and look at all these old cases. You've got to see how many testified. By the testified. U.S. attorney general's office. Well, no, the state attorney state general. State by state. State, no, the by state, state. attorney general. Okay, all right, I'm all for it. If they do it, I'm... Here is Seth Miller, executive director of the Innocence Project of Florida. There's no question that it's widespread corruption. Um, it's, it's fraud. Um, it's caused an unknown number of wrongful convictions, three of which we know about, Juan Ramos, Wilton Dedge, and William Dillon. And somebody has to do something about this. Here is attorney Sam Bardwell, who quit the prosecutor's office because he didn't like what was going on. I started at the state attorney's office at 10-16-78. I left there 4-30-82. Um, the reason I just plain quit, I couldn't deal with it. This was at the height of the activities that I find personally repulsive. His whole body of work as a prosecutor has been impugned. And let me tell you, no amount of judging is going to compensate for that. You get the picture. These experts, all of them lawyers, and even our own attorney general indicate they believe there was corruption going on, that something was rotten in the state attorney's office in the early 1980s. What happens now? I don't want to hear about calling for an investigation. My newspaper has already done that again and again and again. We did it after Wilton Dedge was exonerated in 2004. We did it again in 2007 when William Dillon was exonerated. We did it again after I wrote a story about dog handler John Preston and the reign of terror he imparted on the Space Coast. In fact, I found 10 editorials we wrote over the years calling for an investigation. I also don't want to hear that state attorney Phil Archer is going to do one. That's like the fox guarding the hen house. Plus, his predecessor, Norman Wolfinger, said he did one regarding the John Preston cases as well around 2009. And surprise, surprise, he found nothing wrong with those convictions. We seemingly can't count on our own attorney general, Pam Bondi, who in 2010 promised an investigation into misconduct. And she's yet to even issue a statement on what she found, if anything. The time for talk is through, and something real needs to happen. Gary Bennett needs to be released and granted a new trial. And the men responsible for stealing 54 years from Dedge and Dylan and Ramos need to be held accountable. Those same men have kept Gary Bennett in prison for more than three decades, years after they executed Gerald Stano. And it's not just me who sees this pattern, this playbook, Again, here is Seth Miller of the Innocence Project of Florida. Certainly, these folks should be held accountable. I, I, mean, I mean, the issue is in these cases that you see the same formula in all the cases. There's holes in the case, they get filled with a dog handler. There's holes in the case, they get filled with the jailhouse informant, right? So there's, um, this is sort of a cottage industry among the prosecutors and the, and the police about how to, how, how to run these cases so that they can build enough of a case to get a conviction, um, you know, the truth of the matter be damned. And so, yeah, of course they should be held accountable. And I think, you know, in a different world um, uh, where we weren't, in some cases, 30 years after the fact, you could maybe build a case of a pattern and practice of committing this kind of misconduct. 
the problem is is that we're too far down the line, right? I mean, people people have died, people aren't around, evidence has been destroyed, um, and you know, statute of limitations have run, and we're just not able to get at the question. You know, at the Innocence Project Florida, we spend all of our time trying to get people out of prison, and we are always struggling with this notion of should we move some of our efforts to um, to you know after the fact accountability. What we always come back to is we we have not enough people and too much work to focus on that. There's not there needs to be people um, out in the community, lawyers, organizations who are focused on what do we do to hold the state, hold the government accountable when they commit misconduct. The question for what we can do at Brevard County, it's it's not clear because again, um, even if we were able to make a pattern of practice claim, I'm not sure that we would be able to fall within. Um, statute limitations. So Seth Miller believes that there was misconduct, but he also believes that it might be too late to do anything about it. I hope he's wrong. His focus right now is on trying to prevent something like this from happening again. I think there's no question that there was misconduct. Um, the, the question I think for us is how can we change the laws so going forward when we do identify future misconduct? we can actually do something about it. What Brevard County needs is what they are doing right now in New York. Bronx prosecutor Darcel Clark created the Conviction Integrity Unit after taking office last year and has already asked judges to vacate two wrongful convictions she has found. In Manhattan and Brooklyn, where they have had similar units for the last few years, they've already released 28 wrongfully convicted men. In Brevard, the reaction has always been to protect the conviction at all costs, no matter the evidence or lack of it. It's appalling. Remember last year when Phil Archer basically said the jury in Gary Bennett's case would have found him guilty, even without the testimony of lying dog handler John Preston? He said, and I quote, As it stands, there is more than sufficient evidence to sustain the conviction of Gary Bennett regardless of the minor role played by Preston and the dog. Minor? Unreal. I asked local attorney Kepler Funk about being able to trust the prosecution and the recent passage of a law in Los Angeles that would make it a felony for prosecutors who knowingly present false evidence or withhold key evidence. If there's a finding of knowingly uh, holding back evidence that would tend to exonerate a defendant, uh, oh, absolutely. I, to me, that's that's akin to criminal. Uh, I mean, because the consequences to the individual are so grave, right? Um, and that so violates what prosecutors' oath. Remember, they take an oath to uphold the Constitution. And along with that is um, kind of in opposite of that oath is withholding evidence that would tend to exonerate somebody, Right. I mean, it's, it's kind of the, uh, the Spider-Man cliche, right? With great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> but it's true, right? It's true. I mean, those folks are extremely powerful. Um, and so we want the, the most ethical, uh, most ethical, I guess. We want ethical people um, in that position. And if there's a finding of intentional withholding of evidence that would tend to exonerate somebody, um, I would depending on the language of, of what that legislation says, is uh, I'd be all for that. Um, it's sad to me we're actually having this discussion. 
I could think of circumstances where presenting, knowingly presenting fabricated evidence or false evidence, that could be more damning than withholding evidence. I think it depends on the facts of the case. Both of them are horrific and are a nightmare scenario for whoever the person is in the crosshairs of that. And I use the word evil. That's an evil human being who, who intentionally, knowingly does that. We've laid it all out there. We've presented our case. We've contacted the Florida Attorney General. We've also reached out to the Department of Justice. I don't think we'd be satisfied with anything less than a real criminal investigation into all of this. And I mean a real investigation. One that would at least equal what we've done. You know, read every single trial transcript. Look at all the police reports, the depositions, the appeals. Talk to the people from that era who know what was going on. William Dillon, Wilton Dedge, and Juan Ramos need accountability. Gary Bennett needs a fair trial. The victims of these crimes, crimes still unresolved because the wrong people were prosecuted, need justice done in their memory. We, as the citizens, need the state to be held accountable. While we wait for that to happen, and believe me, I'm not holding my breath, there are other questions to consider. Do we need new laws on the book? Do we need the Bar Association to get tougher. If lawyers are whispering about it and quitting their jobs over concerns, then some group needs the teeth to hear these concerns and take action. Another step would be preventing the district courts of appeal from issuing PCA or per curiam affirmed decisions without opinions. With no opinion, the appeals process comes to a grinding halt. That's what's happened in Gary Bennett's case. Again, here is local attorney Kepler Funk. The number one issue, let's just presume for a second that the PCAs are done because they don't have time to write those opinions. Then just carve out a small amount in our budget. Let's have more DCA judges, more staff attorneys, give them the tools, the resources that they need to write opinions in every case. I know what they would say to you is we don't have time to do that. Right. We don't have time to do that. Well, Come on, you had time enough to evaluate the case, to read the transcript, to read the briefs of the defense and the prosecution, right? And you've come to a conclusion, which means you had to do all of that research or know the reasons why we're wrong. Exactly. Just tell me. Right. And I'm here to tell you the real truth is, is that those appellate courts reweigh evidence even though they're not supposed to. Attorney Greg Eisenmenger calls PCAs frustrating. You can request an opinion. I mean, it's frustrating uh, for, for me when you see uh, appellate courts uh, actually uh, uphold something based on a fact that the record doesn't support. With regards to new legislation, again, here is Seth Miller of the Innocence Project of Florida. But in the legislature this year in 2017, we have a number of bills that... Uh, would not necessarily address, you know, past wrongs to individuals um, who have been wrongfully convicted, um, but you know, would address how to prevent wrongful convictions in the future. So every time we have an exoneration, um, we learn something from it. We look at what were the causes of this person's wrongful conviction and what, you know, how can we leverage that knowledge to try to prevent wrongful convictions in the future. So this year, 
we are um, championing two uh, innocence protection reform bills, one dealing with the mandatory recording of custodial interrogation so we can you know, root out police misconduct that causes false confessions and prevent them from becoming features of trials and, uh, and uh, causing wrongful convictions, but also uh, another bill that would mandate how law enforcement does uh, witness lineups, both photo lineups and live lineups, to make them more scientifically valid um, and make it less likely that uh, the way that a lineup is constructed or administered can uh, lead to a misidentification that causes a wrongful conviction. Those are great steps for a more just system. But again, they do nothing to hold those who sent William Dillon, Wilton Dedge, Juan Ramos, and Gary Bennett to prison, and Gerald Stano to the electric chair, accountable. Have they won? Maybe. And if so, that would be not only sad, but also heartbreaking. Maybe it's up to each and every one of you who have listened to these 14 episodes to share the story with a friend or contact someone in a position to do something, something real. And remember, Gary Bennett is still in prison out of options. Are we sure enough that he did it to not take another look? After all, his prosecution was strikingly similar to that of William Dillon and Wilton Dedge, and we know they didn't do it. And it was similar to Juan Ramos, and he was freed on retrial. Thank you for your time, and thank you for listening. I will leave you with this clip from William Dillon about how it feels to be freed after spending 27 years in prison for something he was framed for. I'm here, but I'm not really wanting to be. I mean, I know I'm blessed to be sitting here talking to you, and I'm blessed to be out in society doing things, but it's almost like that the world is moving so fast, so much movement that I just can't catch up, and I realize in my own head that I'm not going to be able to catch up. You got to realize that in my head, I've figured out numbers that I really only have maybe 20 good years of life left. You know, I get up into my 70s, and life's a little bit harder, you know, you know, deal with it in that sense. So, physically able wise, as far as functioning in a sense of any little bit of youth left, which is limited, would be five years, maybe 10. Then I'm going to get into the older years. So basically, in my mindset that I miss that and that there's no need for me to try to even catch it. So there's a big gap in my life in this free world that I can't catch and when I'm dealing with people, it's very evident. Again, I'm news columnist John A. Torres, and you can follow me on Twitter at John Albert Torres. That's at J-O-H-N-A-L-B-E-R-T-O-R-R-E-S. And for more information on these cases and web exclusives, please go to floridatoday.com. Also, if you'd like to attend our special roundtable event on Wednesday, May 10th, from 5 to 7 p.m. at Open Mics in Melbourne, please buy your ticket online at floridatoday.com. We have a great lineup, including Michelle Martin, J.R. Russo, and Wilton Dedge. Tickets are $20, only $15 if you subscribe to the newspaper, 
and it includes a beer or wine as some appetizers. Murder on the Space Coast is written and narrated by me, John A. Torres. The producer has been Rob Landers, and my editor is Mara Bellaby. Thanks for listening to Murder on the Space Coast, brought to you by Florida Today, a part of the USA Today Network. <laughs>